Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and also Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent. We're also joined by Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Elaine Moore, the deputy editor of Lex. Down the line from Beijing, we're joined by Don Wineland, our Asia financial correspondent. And this week, we'll be looking at UBS and Swinegate in China, a look at Deutsche Bank as it founds a bad bank, And finally, Facebook. How is it going to shake up the payments world? First, though, to that story about UBS. It's got itself into rather a lot of hot water over the past few days in something which is being called internally Swinegate. This was after a senior economist at the bank, Paul Donovan, talked about the epidemic of swine flu in China and appeared, in terms of social media response, to be calling Chinese people pigs. That, of course, is not what Mr Donovan said. Don, thanks for joining us. Explain exactly what did happen, what Mr Donovan was talking about, uh, and how it's got out of control. Last week on Wednesday, Mr. Donovan issued a banking report on consumer price inflation in China and how swine flu, which is something that's affecting pigs in China and Africa, how that was impacting inflation. Now, in his report, he uses the phrase Chinese pigs. Basically, he's talking about the viewpoint from a Chinese pig, the animal, you know, if you were to have swine flu, whether or not that would matter to you. And uh, he's saying that it would matter, of course, if you were a Chinese pig or if you're a consumer of Chinese pork. The way that it's been construed in China on social media has been basically that he's called Chinese people pigs. Looking at the translation from the perspective of an English speaker who also reads Chinese, it's pretty easy to tell that some of these translations and interpretation of this are not entirely genuine. Um, It does seem like people have whipped up nationalistic sentiment in order to make people upset at UBS. Let's see how the bank and Mr Donovan have responded. Mr Donovan has been put on leave and he also very swiftly, within a day or so of this blowing up, issued an apology over the incident. Let's hear what exactly he said. First, an apology to my China listeners about yesterday's podcast on inflation in China. I apologise unreservedly for any misunderstanding caused by my innocently intended comments. We've removed the audio comment from circulation. To be clear, this comment was about inflation and Chinese consumer prices rising, which was driven by a 14.4% year-on-year higher price for pork. So, Don, where does this leave things? UBS does seem to have been losing business as a result of the Farago, is that right? 
well, they've clearly lost business. So this isn't just some social media trend right now in China. I mean, they've lost business on a USD bond issuance earlier this week. The largest state railway company dropped them from the mandate as of Monday. Prior to that, one of China's largest securities houses, Haitong Securities, said that it was severing their relationship with UBS. So it's, you know, it's far more than just some kind of social media blow up. It's really rippled out into real UBS business in China. Well, we'll keep a close eye on it because I suspect it hasn't ended there. And obviously, if they feel obliged for business reasons to make Mr. Donovan's leave of absence into a permanent departure, I suspect it would have pretty serious consequences for staff morale as well. So they're in a bit of a bind. We'll keep a close eye. Thank you, Don, for joining us. So let's move on to our second topic and a look at Deutsche Bank. Stephen, you led the story the other day about plans to set up a new so-called bad bank within Deutsche to take on some non-core assets. Could be up to 50 billion of assets weighted for risk. Is this the decisive radical plan that Deutsche watchers have been waiting for? Well, you have to hope so. We've had so many final restructurings over the years at Deutsche Bank. But this one, the new-ish CEO, Christian Saving, is really trying to address the bank's underlying problems, get rid of a lot of these non-revenue generating capital intensive assets that have been sat on the balance sheet, a real drag on both earnings and also their capital buffers, and also radically cut back the unprofitable parts of the trading arm, which is the equities business and rates business, particularly in the US, but also in other places outside of Europe. And as one of the people we spoke to for an analysis piece said, it's going from being the Goldman Sachs of Europe to more the BNP Paribas of Germany. So Deutsche Bank really retreating back to its roots, which, as you remember, is a trade financing bank for German corporates without the ambitions of doing exotic derivatives in the US and leading massive Californian tech IPOs. Well, it's an interesting plan, which we, as you say, sketched out what we have found out about it. The details will be announced, we believe, along with second quarter results at the end of July. But I just wanted to bring in an expert on bad banks now. Jan Kranstrom has set up several bad banks in his life, or at least run them. Thank you for joining us. I remember, Jan, we first dealt with each other back in Germany, probably about 15 years ago, when you were running the bad bank at Dresdner Bank, which, of course, no longer exists as a separate entity. It's since been subsumed into Comets Bank. But, Jan, what are the merits more broadly of setting up bad banks? Why do people do it? Well, I guess the important start is that you have a huge problem in your entity. can be a bank, can also be a company, of course, industrial company, and you need to do some really radical moves. What I then would observe is a couple of things. First of all, this usually has to be initiated by the owners. They have an stake in the game to pay the tickets, which is take as a kind of investment. Board and management are usually potentially part of the problem, and the restructuring always means that their jobs become less certain going forward. So I think it has to come from the owners. In all cases, I have done it's owner-initiated. The big thing is, of course, we talk about bad banks, but in reality... It's about defining the future, the good bank, if you like. And um, if this bank has sufficient sustainable pieces for a future value creation for the shareholders, then it is a big merit to focus 
and separate out the good bank so it can focus and add value by developing the business. And therefore, you have to take care of what we usually call in popular language, the bad bank. And the bad bank has, of course, a completely different governance need, targets, rewards. People typically work themselves out of a job, which takes a certain type of measurements to secure the people to finalize their job. In both reasons, there is an urgency. Of course, you would like to get the good piece moving as fast as possible in this competitive market. And you need to have some speed in the restructuring of the bad part so you can divest the pieces in an organized way as soon as possible. Just remind me when you were winding down the Dresdner bad bank. And before that, obviously, one of the first operations you did of this kind was back in Sweden in the mid-1990s. How long typically did it take you to wind down this kind of bad bank? I think in both cases, we spent five years. Dresdner a little bit shorter. It was 35 billion euro of assets. The situation was a little bit more complex and we had much more underlying assets to absorb. So it took... uh, Five years, yeah. Well, that's food for thought indeed. Let me bring in Stephen for a final word on this. As Jan said, one of the crucial points that you need to bear in mind when you're creating a bad bank and hiving that off and selling the assets is that the remainder of the operation, the good bank, if you like, is credible, has a credible business plan. And we think that alongside this bad bank announcement, they are going to double down, if you like, on some of their existing operations, the transaction bank, maybe their private wealth management operation. Are those credible entities? Can you found a kind of good Deutsche Bank? Well, they certainly seem to think so. A lot of the investors and the analysts and also the executives themselves that we've talked to over the course of our reporting believe that the transaction bank specifically, so the the part that does cash management, the part that does trade finance, really has deep relationships with corporates doing relatively vanilla banking for them, but is consistently profitable, doesn't attract major losses, and links very closely with their other strong business, which is their fixed income trading, which is bond and parts of their rates trading. So there is a good Deutsche under there somewhere. The question that we've always been struggling to ask is why it has taken Deutsche so long to retrench back to this good bank. Now, one of the arguments we've heard is that they quite simply didn't have the capital space, both in terms of their loss absorbing buffer and also the cash generation. But it's got to the point now where the shares are trading at a 149 year low. Investors have said, OK, we can't raise any more equity from us after raising 30 billion euros since 2010. So this really is sort of a last throw of the dice for the at least the current management team. And I guess for all the 90,000 odd staff that Deutsche Bank has left, you have to hope that this restructuring really is the final one that reveals a sustainably profitable and well-behaved Deutsche Bank underneath. Certainly a lot to play for. Stephen and Jan Kranstrom, thank you so much for joining us. So let's move on to our third topic. And Facebook is going to go head to head with a lot of banks and other payments companies with its new venture, Libra. Nick, tell us exactly what's going on here. Yeah, so we've been hearing bits and pieces tripping out of Facebook for the last couple of months and finally got the full details on Tuesday. And it emerges that it's not just Facebook. They've taken the lead, but are working with different backers from venture capital firms to Uber and Vodafone and Visa and several other big companies to create this sort of global digital currency. In practice, there's kind of three parts to this. At the top, there's a supervisory body called the Libra Association. 
that's what those other backers have joined and they'll be supervising how things work and the technology and also managing a reserve of real world assets like treasuries and currencies. The second part of this, which is the Libra cryptocurrency, is the Libra coin and a blockchain style network that in theory, other firms will be able to build on top of. So they say it will be scalable and it will be able to deal with money laundering risks and you'll be able to build more complex contracts on top of that that should allow for new types of financial products. The third bit is the actual Facebook-owned piece, which is called Calibra, and that is going to be the first wallet that is built on top of this network. At a basic function, it's going to be a way to let people pay their friends through WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. But the idea is to build it up into a bigger payments product where you might be buying things through Instagram, or if you're a migrant worker, sending money back home getting into the remittance industry, which is actually huge around the world. And then longer term, they're hoping to build into more of a full-on challenge towards banks in the sense that there are hundreds of millions of people around the world and millions even just in the UK and US of people who don't have proper bank accounts. And they think this could be an area, not just like, say, a PayPal, where you only use it for making purchases, but something where you could be storing your money and saving as well. The impact here could be huge, couldn't it? And I'm sure Facebook is spinning it that way. I suspect one of their lines would be that they have the power to end the issue of people being disenfranchised from the financial system, bring those masses, as you say, those millions of people into access to cash or access to financial services. From an impact point of view on the established players in the industry, this is also potentially massive because Facebook has the kind of reach with its billions of users that no other financial institution would. Who is set to lose from this? So this is all contingent on it working. It's quite a big if, but if it does work, a lot of different people, almost every link in the current payments chain stands to lose to a lesser or greater extent. The blockchain network itself on which these products will be built, that gets into the backyard of people like Visa and MasterCard who provide the existing infrastructure that powers the back end of transactions. And then at the more consumer-facing side, where Calibra is sitting, that's where card issuers, generally banks, but also people like Apple, who've been moving into the space recently, and PayPal, and the acquirers who are people like WorldPay, who link customers' cards with merchants and the sort of MasterCard networks, they all stand to lose out as well. Banks could lose out doubly, so if it does genuinely become a place where people store money, not just spend it, even the Libra Association, which is managing a big reserve of assets and supervising a currency, you start stepping on the toes of central banks, which leads into the big if of whether they can actually get approval for all of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's really shaking up that space of central banking and regulation, of course, which goes to the heart of how much control central authorities have over the payment system and the money creation system. So, Caroline, what are the authorities saying? Well, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, was asked about this on Tuesday while he was at a central banking conference in Portugal. And essentially, he said that the BOE is keeping an open mind about Facebook's plans, but obviously they are going to be subject to scrutiny, particularly if they reach that systemic level where many people are using Libra to essentially buy goods and services. So I think what the BOE has said is that certainly it should be studied at a global level rather than country by country, which I think is broadly sensible. So that would probably be the Financial Stability Board, which is something Mr. Carney used to chair, as well as the G7, IMF, those kind of bodies. 
I think there are obvious policy and regulatory concerns that are thrown up by Facebook's rather ambitious plans. And they range from the very kind of existential questions such as, is Libra actually money? Is it a token? Is it indeed a financial instrument, which would bring to bear the rather tough securities laws in the United States and Europe, through to very prosaic questions about data protection and indeed money laundering and whether this could be used to facilitate financial crime. And these are things that regulators and policymakers really are only beginning to grapple with now that they've seen the detail of the white paper. Well, indeed, I suppose Facebook shouldn't be surprised. It has announced a pretty ambitious overhaul of the way all of this financial structuring takes place. So it can expect, I suppose, to have the world's authorities, regulators, central banks scrutinise it pretty closely. Well, you know, if you've got one of the world's biggest tech companies that's already subject to a raft of political scrutiny over its ability to handle data, then it's only natural that once it announces its foray into financial services, that is definitely going to get the attention of regulators and policymakers the world over. So Elaine, from a Lex point of view, give us your take on this Facebook initiative. Is it going to work? My take is that this is incredibly ambitious. It's impressive to get together this group of partners to put PayPal and Visa and Uber and Lyft all in one room. This is not a group of organisations that you expect to see working together necessarily. I also think it is extremely risky and highly unlikely to work. I just can't see why users, an average user, would want to trust Facebook with the sort of information that will be required to use this. I know they said they've worked with partners. I know they say that the information will be kept separate from the advertising accounts. However, I don't think that Facebook necessarily understands how the general public feels towards the company these days. So I suppose it's one thing, yes, for Facebook to manipulate the data of its users when it's all about messaging and posting photos or whatever. But when it's to do with financial information, people are much more nervous, aren't they? Yes, people and also regulators are much more nervous, as they should be. And Facebook has not yet addressed exactly how any of this will work. So it hasn't said exactly what the digital coin will be. It hasn't said whether it will be a security or not. It has said that it wants to be very proactive in talking to regulators, but it hasn't specified exactly who it's spoken to and how they feel about it. There's a really good reason that it's announcing this way ahead of the actual launch. And to some of us, that suggests that it might never actually happen. I also think it's very strange. They want to have 100 partners and they've announced 28. Where are the rest? Where are they? Queuing up, queuing up. Are they? (laughs) I'm not sure. We shall see. Thank you very much. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you to Stephen and Nick and also to Caroline and Elaine. And thank you to Don Wineland, who joined us from Beijing, and our guest this week, Jan Kranstrom, the Bad Bank Specialist. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. 
The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.